You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. What better passage to have Alex start off reading than, than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I would have avoided this uh, if it weren't uh, submitted among the topics that were submitted for the questionable series. I uh, was just doing the math, and over the uh, past 19 years, I have served as a preaching, teaching pastor. There are three times that I, actually two times that I've addressed the topic of women in leadership in the church, and this is the third time. So that gives you some indication as to uh, how how eager I am to just jump right into this passage and, and open the scriptures with you related to this subject. Uh, I think I've preached on money more than I've preached on this passage. So, uh, and money is my, set, my, my other least favorite topic to preach on. In fact, the last, <laughs> you, many of you were here when uh, Dan preached on money, which was a subject that was submitted for the questionable series, and I was happy to pass that on to him. I don't know anybody at Meadowbrook who would be willing to tackle this, so, so I'll, be, I'll be the guy. All that to say is I actually, my prayer is, and I think, I think you will be helped by the, end of, by the end of our time together in this passage. Well, I read a verse in Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul explained to these elders in Ephesus, he said, the three years that I've been with you, I have spent my time with you to, in an attempt to explain the whole counsel of God's word to you. And that is the role of a pastor. So the role of the, so, so we'll, we'll get into this a little bit in the sermon, but, but you have overseers or elders. They're, they're, those those uh, office, the titles for offices are used interchangeably in the New Testament. I believe they're the same thing, overseers, elders. And later on in 1 Timothy, you'll see that uh, in chapter 5, that there is an overseer or an elder that is set aside for the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's my role. So I am accountable to the overseers or the elders of Meadowbrook Church. I am one of them. I am equal with them. I am set apart for the preaching and teaching of God's word, among other things as well. And so uh, that, that, that is my role. My responsibility to Meadowbrook is not to preach, not that every sermon is a sermon that makes you feel good <laughs> about yourself or about life or about whatever. My responsibility to you is to preach the full counsel of God's word to you. And uh, sometimes that means preaching difficult passages like this one. What is, what, what is the word of God saying? What does the word of God say concerning you know, men and women and, and, and the family and vice versa. And so that's, that's this week. Here's what I want to do with our time that we have together. There are four things I want to do. The fourth thing is where we'll spend most of our time. But here are the four things. One, I, I want to answer the question, or four questions I want to answer is, one, what is the big deal with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13? And why does it matter? Why is it important? Two, uh, why am I willing to address a controversial subject like the role of women in leadership roles in the church? I already answered that question, so we're good there. What are the three ways Christians have read and understood 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through, through 12, that difficult, controversial section of Scripture? 
And then four, the fourth question, was, what does the Bible really say about the role of women in ministry? So I'll spend most of my time answering the fourth question. So there are three views of uh, women uh, in, in leadership or in the leadership of the church. Uh, and and it, it, these three views flow out of like, what, you know, an effort of trying to figure out what is verse 11 and verse 12 of 1 Timothy saying. So here, before we go any further, if you have a Bible, you should be opening it right now or have it open. If you're using a digital device, I want you to go to this passage. I want you to see the text for yourself. Who cares what, what Pastor Keith thinks, right? What, what does the Bible say? So the, the other thing I want you to do is that at the end of this, at the end of the service, Sometime this week, go home and search the scriptures for yourself. The danger, is, the danger for us that faces us is to take our feelings and the way we think the Bible should, the, the things that we think the Bible should say, and impose them on the text of scripture. And the danger in doing that is when, when you don't like something that is in the Bible, and you try to, you try to tr- tweak it or do <laughs> gymnastics with the, with the verses in the Bible, you want, the danger is that you can make God in your own image, right? So if the, bio, if the word of God is the word of God, we must submit to it. So there are three views, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on this in understanding this, this passage. There's hyperheadship. There, another word that's used for that is hierarchical. Um, and this position basically says, that in light of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the only place for women to teach in the local church is with children or with other women. That's not where Meadowbrook's at. And that's certainly not where I'm at. So, so hyperheadship will say there's a, there, there's a distinction between men and women. Men are called to the teaching of God's word primarily and... Uh, and women could teach God's word when there's only women present, but never when there's a man present in, in the room. That's hyperheadship. Egalitarian position is that there is no gender distinction between the roles, uh, leadership roles in the church. So women can serve as pastors, men can serve as pastors, women can, can do all the things that men are, can be gifted to do. There are gifted, men and women can be gifted equally in terms of leadership roles in the church. And... Um, uh, particularly to the, the role of elder. Uh, men and women can serve in that role. That's the egalitarian camp. That's not where Meadowbrook is at. And then there's complementarianism. And complementarianism says this, that there's, there's gender-neutral roles in the church, gender-neutral leadership roles in the church, and then there, then there are gender-specific roles in the church. And there's a whole spectrum here of where people land. Some people land you know, on the, you know, compl- they're complementarian, but they, they gravitate towards the egalitarian side. And then there are others who, who are complementarian and they gravitate towards the hyperheadship side. There's a whole spectrum here. And some of you are wondering, well, what do you believe, Pastor Keith? Tell us, please. I will. When I first became a Christian, I attended a church that fell in this spectrum. Uh, for for a season of time where I was, I was preaching in a church uh, and I was the custodian of a church, 
uh, I was like the associate pastor for a season. I was the interim pastor there for a while. The church kind of was in this, this place. Even though I was finding myself struggling with reconciling this position with what I was reading in the Bible. Now I just offended all you hyper-headship people. So, but I found myself in this, in this category kind of gravitating. I probably moved, if you could track my 20 years of, or more, of uh, pastoral ministry, you would see me kind of like move closer to the center and maybe, maybe towards egalitarianism in terms of where I sit personally, theologically. That doesn't mean that's where Meadowbrook is at right now. Just because I have certain views doesn't mean that, that Meadowbrook has to adopt you know, those views. So I'm gonna say that from the very beginning because as my mentor said, better to, you know, <laughs> the best way to avoid problems is to have them. And so uh, some of you are like, what does that mean? It means just be transparent. So the complementarian view is that, the, that the, church, the church ministries are open to qualified men and women with the exception of the role of pastor elder. Qualified men can serve as deacons, de- uh, or de- uh, qualified men and women can serve as deacons and deaconesses. They can teach, uh, lead worship, uh, be in full-time staff positions, and uh, even serve communion. And I would say that's probably where uh, Meadowbrook is at. That's, that's certainly, I, I'm certainly comfortable with, with, with those things. And then the other thing I want to say, right before, before we get into the scripture, because that's really what matters. What does the Bible say? Uh, I said at the beginning of this sermon series, in the very first sermon, there are primary issues and then there are secondary issues. Primary issues are gospel issues. If you reject these, the primary issues, you're no longer an Orthodox Christian. You no longer believe uh, in, the, in Orthodox Christianity. And what I mean by, not, I'm not talking about Orthodox Catholicism or whatever. I'm talking about, uh, you know, like the Bible's, 100% true. Uh, Jesus lived a sinless life. Like, that's a gospel issue. Jesus died for our sins. That's a gospel issue. He rose on the third day. That's a gospel issue. The Bible is without error. That, for me, is a gospel issue. I'm going to die on that hill. Those are gospel issues. Secondary issues are important issues. They're in the Bible. We should seek to understand what the Bible says about those things, but they're not, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not um, staking your orthodoxy on those secondary issues. If you, it, there's room for disagreement in secondary issues. This, for me, is a secondary issue. I have friends in the, that are all the way in the egalitarian camp. I have fewer friends that are here, um, and uh, there, are, there are a bunch of friends that are probably you know, somewhere in the complementarian camp. But uh, we, can dis- we can disagree on those things. It's, I feel the same way about this, as I do about where I stand regarding Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, I think that's a secondary issue. I have strong convictions about where I, what I believe on those things, just like I have strong convictions about some of these things. Uh, but this is a secondary issue. There's no reason to break fellowship over this. And so I wanted to say that at the very beginning. So... Let's get into the Bible, because that's really what, what's important. What did Paul write, or why did Paul write 1 Timothy? Why did he write 1 Timothy? I, I, I don't, the guys that I meet with on, on two, or Sunday afternoons, I, 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 I hammer this 
as often as I, as I possibly can, and I, I, you've heard me say it here on Sunday morning, context, context, context. It, you could pull a verse like verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12 out of the pages of Scripture and say, see, women shouldn't teach in, in any, any uh, area except for if it's with children and with other women. You, you, could pull, you could do that with these verses. But what is the context of 1 Timothy? So I just want to set this just really quick. We're actually in the fall. We're going to be doing a sermon series. I'll be preaching a sermon series through Ephesians. We'll get into the culture of Ephesus. But, but Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. So right now, when he received this letter, 1 Timothy, he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And so it's important that you know something about Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. He, he, uh, he, he said that he, he worked hard at expounding and unpacking what the Bible teaches. You know, he, as, as a result, people came to faith in Christ. They were saved out of some really dark paganism. And, and uh, in Acts chapter 20, there's this beautiful section in Acts chapter 20 where he's about to... Paul, uh, uh, senses it's time to leave Ephesus and continue in the other uh, areas of ministry that God has called him, the, the, the work of a missionary, the work of an evangelist. And so there's this conversation that they have and, and they cry together and they send Paul off. That's Acts chapter 20. Uh, but to understand what was going on in Ephesus, you had the Temple of Artemis there. It was also known as the Temple of Diana. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was, Ephesus was a hub for, for uh, commerce and trade. It was also a place that was popular to visit for reasons centered around the Temple of Artemis. Uh, it, it, I don't know how, you know, I, don't, I mean, who knows how many people in the city of Ephesus tied their identity to the Amazons, <laughs> the Amazon women, yeah. Here, here's some geeky stuff for some of you superhero fans. Uh, Wonder Woman's name is what? Diana. She comes from where? The Amazons. What are the Amazons known as or known for? Very strong women, right? So there's this mythological queen of the Amazon women known as Ephos. Mm. And uh, it was believed, some say that they, it was thought that Ephesus founded Ephesus. Ironic that you have the temple of Artemis or Diana as the main thing of Ephesus, where you had temple prostitutes that you would visit with as a way of worshiping Diana and it was ugly and it was demonic and actually there, there's when you read through Acts when Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus people started burning their 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 idols and throwing away their idols and their stuff associated with demons and and the people who made their living off of selling those idols got really ticked off at, at Paul like God was doing an amazing work in Ephesus, 
and a church was birthed out of Ephesus. The Amazons were, were portrayed as being superior to men. And, um, and so all this was part of the culture. In, in the name of, or in, in, with the, in the name of this idea of women being superior to men, I mean, when you do a study in the, in the temple of Art, concerning the temple of Artemis, when you do a deep dive into that, it's really ugly. With the, I mean, think about it. The women, women served as temple prostitutes. They became objects to men in the name of, you know, liberated women. Um, Satan, I said this before, Satan will, he, he's a really good, he's really good at, at creating cheap substitutes. And so when we get into the, the, to the letter to the Ephesians in the fall, you're going to see some of the stuff come out where, where Paul addresses some of the stuff that, that the culture of Ephesus was known for. So, so you had that going on. When Paul prayed with the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said this, and the words will be on the screen. He said, he said a bunch of things, but I just want to focus on this. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And, and so, so when you read 1 Timothy, and I don't know how many of you read the e-letter I sent out this week, I asked you, read 1 Timothy and pay, pay special attention to the language, uh, you know, Paul's language of warning Timothy about false teachers. It's, it's peppered throughout 1 Timothy. But just to, just to demonstrate that a little bit for you, uh, he, he said to Timothy, uh, I, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to, not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless gene genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's the beginning of the letter of 1 Timothy. And the, at the end of the letter of 1 Timothy, he said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge but for, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And he even mentioned some people by name who shipwrecked their faith by buying into false teaching. Paul uh, tells us that the, the purpose for why he wrote the letter. So uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if we can go back to that slide. Sorry, I'm, I'm having the... <laughs> um, here we go. This is the, Paul gives us the purpose for why he wrote 1 Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now let me just say something about this for a second. The church is not, is not called to cater to culture. When we read something in the Bible, and just because it may make you feel uncomfortable, we don't look at the culture of the day and impose that on what the Bible teaches. The Bible is countercultural. 
First uh, Timothy was countercultural. Ephesians is count, was countercultural. The Bible is countercultural. God has God created all things. He 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 knows. You know, like, like you hear me say this often. Like this book is not God's method to wreck your joy; it's to maximize it. Right. So. So he calls out the church, that's us, and we are salt and light in a, in, a, in a rotten and dark world, and we bring the gospel into the culture, and the gospel message that we bring is countercultural. Does that make sense? So I just want to point that out. That's the context of 1 Timothy. So now you understand. So Paul is concerned that, that Timothy... Uh, is aware of the false teaching threat in his church, and he's warning him multiple times throughout the letter, be alert, Timothy, fight the good fight, Timothy, watch out for false teaching, Timothy, in the context of, of a culture of Ephesus where in Timothy's backyard was the temple of Artemis. In fact, it's said that Timothy uh, later on it's not in the Bible, it's church tradition, you know, it, it, and I think it, it happened, it is said that the Temple of Artemis would have this annual parade. So think of all the bad stuff <laughs> that um, could happen. And Timothy protested outside of the parade. The people got angry, and they murdered him or martyred him. That's the culture. That's the culture of Ephesus. This is why it's so important when you read the Bible to read a passage of Scripture in its grammatical, historical context. And um, there's a course that's going to be taught in June, Mining God's Word, where we get into that. We unpack that. This is how you, you'll learn how to study the Bible in its grammatical and historical context. So, which leads me to the next point. What is the point of 1 Timothy chapter 2? What's the point? You know, what's the point of Paul's statement to Timothy? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What I'm hoping that's beginning to happen for you right now is your brain is starting, the cogs in your brain are starting to, to move a little bit. Okay, so, this is the, so the context of the Ephesus is what again? And, and, and um, there's the danger of false teaching? Hmm. Um, so let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So if, if you t read this and you think, well, it must be saying that women do not have any place in the church to be able to teach except for in the context of children and, and with, uh, with other women, then I would ask you, what do you do with the rest of the Bible then? And you're like, some of you are like, what do, you, what do you mean? Well, let me tell you. We don't have time to go into all the passages. I read my manuscript when it's up on the website. Take pictures of the slides if you, if you, if you can't keep up. But if Paul is telling us that women cannot teach, why did, he allow, why did God allow Miriam to lead his people in worship and serve, listen, and serve as a prophetess among God's people? Exodus chapter 15, if you're looking for chapter and verse. Um, if, if, God, if, if Paul is telling Timothy there's, that women should not, do not have any place in terms of the teaching of God's word in the context where men are present, 
then what do you do with Deborah, who's, or in terms of leadership, what do you do with Deborah, who served as both a judge and a prophetess? And you can read about her in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And, I, and I've heard people say, well, there were no men available. How do you know that? How do you know? Like, it doesn't say that in the, in the text. There were men. <laughs> she had men that served under her that were good men. Like, so read that sometimes and lose sleep over that. Um, if, if, uh, if, if Paul's saying women should not teach in the context where men are present, what do you do with King Josiah? King Josiah just discovered the book of Deuteronomy. He's like, oh my goodness. Like, I want to be a godly king. I don't know what to do with this. Oh, I know. There's Hodiah. I don't know if I'm butchering her name. Holda, the prophetess, who is known for speaking on behalf of the Lord, I will send my male priest and some other dudes to go seek her out and, and ask her, what should I do with this book of Deuteronomy? And so they do that. And Hodiah, the female priestess, and prophetess, I'm sorry, prophetess, speak, I mean, it's a really cool passage. It's 2 Timothy chapter 22, read it. She speaks the word of God over a male, a male priest. Okay, we'll just sleep over that one too. Um, and then Micah chapter six, verse four, where Miriam is listed as one of the three leaders that God used to deliver the Hebrew people from the bondage of slavery. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Micah chapter six, verse four. And then, okay, so maybe you're like, oh, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament's a whole different thing. No, it's not, but there's verses in the New Testament. What do you do if, Paul's, if, if we're going to take verse 11 and 12 as though Paul were saying women have no role or are not permitted to teach in any context where men are present, what do you do with Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2? Now, we don't have time to read the whole sermon. But Peter stood up, he said, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. So they're like, they're speaking in tongues and people are like, whoa. Have they been drinking? I mean, it's too early to be like, you know, drinking. Um, like, what's going on here? And he, Paul, uh, Peter says this. He said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters <laughs> shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they, men and women, shall prophesy. And you may say, well, um, that is talking about the end times. It can't be talking about the church. Well, then I'll ask you, what do you do with Philip, who was a deacon, by the way, who had four, four daughters who prophesied in the presence of the Apostle Paul who wrote Second, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? And um, what do you do with his instructions to to wives in the public service of when people come together publicly to worship God where he said, hey women, 
wives, when you prophesy, he's speaking, the context is when you prophesy in public, make sure you have a head cover, covering. I, I find it interesting. Now, there are some ca- examples of people who take the hyper um, or the hierarchical position uh, who will wear, the females will wear head coverings. But the church that I served at, that sat in this guy, I, didn't, I don't remember ever seeing women wear head coverings. Um, we tend to be selective in what we're comfortable with or what we feel strongly about and uh, dismissive of the thing that we're not so comfortable with. But we're called to hear the word of God and to obey it. And so um, you have, here's one other example, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla was a female. And in Acts chapter 18, they were listening to Apollos, who was a really good speaker. He was a good preacher. And he said something. We're not told what he said, but he said something where like, eh, I need to tweak that a little bit theologically. You're a little off, Apollos. And they pulled him aside. They didn't call him out in public. They pulled him aside and were told not just Aquila, but uh, Priscilla and Aquila corrected him. Paul's saying, hey, women shouldn't teach men in any context, then why didn't Priscilla keep her mouth shut and let her husband talk? And then there's Mary Magdalene. I'm just setting up the context. We'll get to the whole, this passage, and we'll have time to do it, um, trust me. So, uh, in John chapter 20, Jesus told Mary, Magdalene, I mean, remember, she was the first one to witness the resurrected Jesus, right? And he told her, go to my brothers and say to them, what? Jesus told Mary Magdalene to speak God's truth? You know, to the, to the future apostles? Tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Um, <laughs> the first post-resurrection sermon <laughs> in a sentence. Uh, and then Matthew 28 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus didn't say, hey, women, when you go and bring the gospel to other people, make sure it's just women because you don't want to be teaching other men. And so Jesus didn't say that. This mandate is to both men and women. You see how countercultural the Bible is? Now, that's not dismissing verse 11 and 12, because I'm going to demonstrate that in a a minute. Because Paul will say, let's look back at the text here. In verse 13, he will say, for. (laughs) It's a connecting word. In light of verses 8 through 12, for, here's the reason. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, or Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I could preach a whole sermon on that verse. We don't have time for that. I just want you to see why Paul inserts in his letter, in three verses, the, the illustration of Adam and Eve and their relationship. 
Now, let's back up a little bit. If the context of 1 Timothy, if the motive for Paul writing 1 Timothy is to warn him, hey dude, you are a young pastor. You've got to be alert. You've got to be aware. There are false teachers who are, going, who are creeping into your, into your congregation. You know, somebody said pastors, you know, the, the role, the, the responsibility of a pastor is to uh, shepherd the sheep and shoot the wolves. And so, like, you need to, there's some wolves. You need, to, you, you need to be looking out for them. And here's why. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I want you to just step back a little bit from, from these verses and just, just, just revisit that. I'm, I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and we're told Eve began this conversation in front of the tree that God told Adam, that's really important, God told Adam, you are not to eat from this tree because if you do, you will surely die. Do not eat from the tree, Adam. So now they're do, Adam and Eve are doing what they're supposed to be doing, I'm assuming. They were managing the garden, Eve is before the tree uh, of the fruit of, the, uh, of, of good and knowledge. And she's there, and there is a serpent speaking to her. We, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that Adam was right next to her. And why would Paul, why does Paul feel the need to remind Timothy of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden? Because... Eve was in front of this tree and there was a deceiver in the tree preaching to her false doctrine. False doctrine is anything that twists the word of God or distorts it. He was twisting the word of God. She was listening to it. And Adam, Adam should have intervened and said, wait, wait, wait. That is not what, the, that is not what God said to me. That is not the word of the Lord. Eve, let's get out of here. That's, that's what should have happened. Are you seeing the context now? And so, so Paul says, that's why, Timothy, that's why. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He's not saying that men shouldn't learn with all submissiveness. He's, he, he's saying, there's, there's, there's design here, Timothy, and I'm not finished with my argument here, Timothy. This, this is how the church is to function. Then he gets into chapter 3. Um, and, and so, here's what I want to say before we get to chapter 3, and that is this. The reason why Adam, or no, the reason why Timothy, or Paul, I'm sorry, Paul uses Adam and Eve as an illustration to make his point, sandwiched between uh, verse 11 and 12 and chapter 3, which talks about overseers and then deacons and deacon, and I believe deaconesses as well. Um, the reason is, Adam was by design, listen, Adam was by design called to be the protector and provider of his wife. It didn't mean, doesn't mean that Eve wasn't able to do those things. It's just by design, this is why I believe Paul uses Adam and Eve as an illustration. By design, God designed, he, he, he wired Adam 
to protect and to provide. Eve, who, with her name, he, Adam named her after the, the fall in the garden. Eve, who, whose name means mother of the living, is by design the nurturer and life giver in the, in the, in the relationship where the man and the woman come together to complement one another. That's where we get the word complementarian. Right? They complement each other. Adam is not Eve. Eve is not Adam. They're very different. Eve is not below Adam. Adam is not above Eve. They're co-equal as image bearers of the living God. This is why the Bible is so countercultural. When Moses uh, recorded, uh, wrote down Genesis chapter 3, that was a countercultural statement in Genesis chapter 3. Well, Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And so this is the context that sets up chapter 3 for us. So, now I'm going to answer the question, where are all the women pastors? <laughs> um, so, so Paul, Paul uh, first unpacks what an overseer is. What is an overseer? He's an elder. What, um, what role does this overseer have? Well, first, the overseer is, has got to meet certain qualifications that, uh, that are related to the character of, of the overseer and their maturity as a follower of Jesus. So there's a whole list here. And, and the language that's used in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is, is gender-exclusive, meaning it's, very, it's, it's exclusive. He's speaking to men. Why? Well, because the overseer is called to protect and to provide the doctrines of the church. Now, I'm going to get into what, what, what that looks like in a minute. He's to protect and provide the doctrines of the church. When you get to verse 8 and following, verses 8 through 13, the word deacon can be used of both men and women. Every once in a while, when you read a certain translation, the, the, the um, assumptions of the translators are imposed on the text. And this is one of the places where, there are two places in, in the ESV that make me angry every time I read it. There's Genesis chapter 3, it's the, new tr the, the, the updated 2016 version. It's still a really great translation. And then there's chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 11. So here, let's look at the Bible again, and I, I'm going to wrap this up in a minute and leave you with more questions <laughs> than probably you came in here with. Uh, verse, so chapter, I want you to see something. Chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman, let a gune, that's a, the Greek word is gune. Um, that's, it could be translated, that word, gune, can be translated wife or woman. In fact, it's more frequently translated woman than it is wife, but almost equal. Uh, and then in, in chapter 3, verse 11, the translators of the ESV decided uh, to translate it their wives. But in the Greek, it's just gune. It's just gune. 
Uh, there is, it's not in the genitive, which would uh, make you believe, okay, so he must be referring to, so the genitive is possessive, so it must be, the, uh, it must be connected to the, male, the men deacons. No, that's not, that's not in the Greek. In fact, if the NIV has it right, and so does, if you're wondering, well, I don't like the NIV, it's not literal, well, then read the New American Standard. The New American Standard translates it correctly as well. And the way it should be translated is women. It's in the plural, accusative plural. Women, likewise, must be dignified. So in describing deacons, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, uh, and, and it gives you the list, and women, likewise, also must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, now why, why is there a difference between overseers and deacons? Overseers guard and protect the doctrines of the church. Deacons are the life-giving nurturers of the church. We are going to be installing deacons and deaconesses at Meadowbrook. We're actually, that's one of the things, that's a, a lot of work has been put into that in the elder board. So that's, we're working on that because we feel like it's in the Bible. We, it should be something we're practicing. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> I, I wish I had uh, more time, but I don't. So let me explain what that means. This is the way I see it. Under, so, so, so when it comes to overseers, it's a, it's, that role is gender exclusive, and I cannot get past the language of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That is gender exclusive. Why? Not because women can't do those things. It is by design. The, the family is a microcosm picture of the church. The church is a macro picture of the family. And so, um, so overseers serve to protect and provide the doctrines of the church. There's a, uh, in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, which is also a section on overseers. It said that the elders or overseers must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That is the role of an overseer. What, one of the roles. I mean, that's not the only thing that they do. So, so, so what does that mean? So some of you are asking, what does that mean, Keith? What, what does that mean? Out of the board of, out of the, the We'll call them board of overseers right now, or elders. There is, like I said earlier, there is one or multiple um, elders set aside for the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's my role. Um, I think I believe the, the the tradition of ordination. I think that's where that comes into play. Set aside for the preaching and teaching of God's word. As I am, as I am, in, in, as I'm submissive to the board of elders collectively. Deacons and deaconesses are the life-giving nurturers of the church. They're the hands-on people. If you're wondering, well, is that like a less of a position than overseers? No. <laughs> They're equal in terms of their importance. Philip was a deacon. Stephen was a deacon. He preached the gospel, got stoned, and died. Philip baptized some Ethiopian eunuch in the, in, in the desert. Like, I mean, Philip had three daughters who, who had the gift of prophecy. Like, like the, the, these are... the when it comes to places of authority or whatever you want to call it in the church, they're places of service, not places of, of status. Okay? So, like, I'm not more important than you because I'm, I'm set aside to preach the, the Word of God. I, it's a place of servitude. And so, what can happen under the, the board of, uh, or over the overseer, or under the underseer, no, sorry. <laughs> what can happen 
under the umbrella of those who are called to protect and provide the doctrines of the church. And these are biblically qualified men. These aren't, it's not, it's not to be some club, not some, you know, some guys who are popular in the church. No, these men must meet the qualifications of chapter 3. And if they do, it makes, it makes existing under their headship uh, easier. So under their headship, what can happen? Women can lead. This is the way I read it in the scriptures. We've talked about, it in the, we've talked about some of these things as a board of elders. Women can lead life groups. They can lead Bible studies and teach Bible studies um, where men are present. They can, um, they, they can be evangelists. <laughs> they can do, like, sky's the limit. The only thing that, that, that they're not permitted to do is to serve as an overseer. So then some of you are asking, well, what about preaching, Keith? Can they preach? I see nowhere in the Bible that forbids a woman to preach under the, uh, under the umbrella or the guidance and oversight of overseers. Nowhere. I don't see it. For reasons, for a whole multitude of reasons, which I gave you earlier. Um, and there's, there's so much here. So just read the manuscript. But let me, let me, just, let me just close with this, and the, and the team can come up and conclude in, in, a, in a final song. But just some, a word of application to both men and women. Uh, one, God has created us as equals as his image bearers. I'm talking to men and women. We're equals. There are women in my life who I listen to who have a handle on the word of God. There are, there are women in this church I go to um, who I have, I, not that I don't respect other women in the church, but there are, there are, there are two women specifically, and they, they know who they are, that, that I, I call and I talk to and I bounce, I bounce ideas off of because I really value their input. Now, I also have men in my life who do the same thing. Uh, in, every era, in every season of ministry, I've had multi multiple women and multiple men who speak into my life. And so we are uh, image bearers of the living God. As men and women, we both bring unique qualities to the church that are God-given, that transcend, listen, that transcend culture. And secondly, a, as men and women, we bring our unique giftedness to the church, and each and every single Christian in this room makes up a part of the church body as a whole. You all have an important role to play in the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Third, we should not look at the different offices of the church in terms of status, but in terms of service. There are places of service. If you're looking at, if you're, if you're ever serving in a church and you're looking at your role as a place of status, you're in the, you, you need to, like, you're in the wrong thing. Like, you, time to leave. <laughs> there are pastors who look at their role as a place of status. Uh, it's a place of service. And, uh, and why? Because we are captive to the Word of God and it's the, the, the authority of the Word of God that speaks into our lives. And then men, it's not Father's Day yet, but we're getting close. But men, let me just say something to you. Um, your God, your, your God has uniquely 
designed, if you're married, man, God has uniquely designed and wired your wife to compliment you and vice versa. She is not less than you. She is not subservient to you. She is an equal with you. you now, God has called you to speak into her life. We'll, we'll, when we get into the Ephesians, we'll unpack this in chapter 5. God has called you to speak into her life. You are to be a man of the book. And the greatest gift you can give to your wife, listen guys, is your own personal holiness. You need to be listening to the voice of God. And I guarantee you, if you're listening to the voice of God and you're seeking to be, to be pleasing to him, it, it will make life on your wife much easier. I've never met a, wo a, a woman married to a man who was excited about having to drag him to church or excited about having to force him to open the Bible or to pray with her. Never, not one. Men, if you're not praying with your wives, if you're not opening the scriptures with them, you need to repent and start doing it. Women, <laughs> uh, thank you for your patience. And, not <laughs> and I love you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pray now. God, thank you so much for this day. And thank you for your word. We ask that you would uh, just seal these words into our hearts, that we, would, uh, that we would listen to your word in the Bible, that we would take, everyone in this room would take what they heard today and take it to the scriptures, that they would download the sermon manuscript, they would examine the scriptures for themselves and see what your word says. And not only see what it says, but to listen to it and to obey it. God, we want to be that church. We want to be that group of Christians. That, that listen to your word, obey it, and go and tell a world where they can find life in the risen Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.